You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening and thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with a murderous rampage, a terror attack in Spain with a van crashing into a packed summer crowd in a popular tourist area. It happened in Barcelona in the historic Las Ramblas district, the van jumping the curb and zigzagging down the pedestrian concourse. This situation and the details are still developing, but at this point we know there are 13 confirmed dead at least 100 injured, but it is believed that no Canadians have been hurt. ISIS is now claiming responsibility. Here's Catherine Urquhart. People were screaming, running for their lives, fleeing Barcelona's famous Las Ramblas Avenue, which was filled with tourists. Accelerating down the packed street was a motorist in a white van, zigzagging to mow down as many pedestrians as possible. Among those fleeing the area, a woman from Surrey. All of a sudden, there was just like screaming and pandemonium behind us. I looked over my shoulder and it was just, just like a flash of white. And all I could hear is like the thump of people being hit. And I just looked ahead of me and I just kept running. Also there, an Ontario woman with her two daughters. We had just started a walking tour when people just started running toward us screaming, saying in Spanish that the cops had told them to get away from La Ferrambla. The carnage was unspeakable. Bodies strewn along the roadway. Amid the chaos, a rush to save the injured. Soon after his rampage, the driver abandoned his van. He remains at large, but two suspects have been arrested, including Driss Ukabaroni, a man known to police who has a criminal past. The use of vehicles is now the low-tech, high-impact option for terrorists. ISIS has claimed responsibility, and police have linked the terror attack to a fatal house explosion Wednesday in Alcanar, Spain. In a separate incident at a Barcelona checkpoint, a car hit an officer and another person, killing the civilian. It's unclear if that's connected. While no Canadians have been physically harmed, the attack has left them shaken. It was um, unbelievable. I've, I've never in my life felt fear like that. I've never had my whole body go cold, have goosebumps. Um, I've never had a moment in my life where I can think of feeling like that. At this hour, a police incident is underway in Cambril, Spain, a coastal town southwest of Barcelona. Police have tweeted that it's being treated as a possible terror attack, and the parties responsible have been taken down. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Well, every time something like this happens, it obviously raises concerns in other major cities around the world. Vancouver has been identified as a medium risk for an attack with many so-called soft targets. Ted Chernecki joins us with more on where those are and what can be done to improve safety. Ted. Chris, in short, they're everywhere and not much. As ISIS gets driven out of Iraq and Syria and so-called soft targets get hardened, it appears the focus is on tourist destination, which, of course, is Vancouver. The military has always been a favorite target. Only recently have we started seeing these dump trucks parked across roads leading to Vancouver's downtown Remembrance Day ceremonies. Increasingly, though, attacks have been against tourist destinations like a Christmas market in Berlin or pedestrian walkways in Nice and now Barcelona. 
Those dump trucks were also evident at this year's fireworks at English Bay. It could be outside of a movie theater. It could be people lining up to go to a big store sale. It could be students lining up to register in a, in a college or a university. Anywhere where a truck or a car can go, and you, you cannot put block, blockades everywhere. Oh my God. Weeks after a suicide bomber killed 22 at a Manchester rock concert, fans at a Whitecaps game in Vancouver saw armed police for the first time. Yet inexplicably, this past Monday, hundreds of Metallica fans were lined up all day along Pacific Boulevard with no apparent protection from a would-be terrorist. Places that have been hit time and time again, they ratch up their security and they, they modify their laws to, you know, for enhanced uh, surveillance. More of it, you know, more cameras in the streets so it becomes tougher. And also, you know, less warrants in terms of surveilling people who they suspect as opposed to people who are actually doing terrorist acts. Here we have more stringent laws and therefore, we you know, makes it easier for a terrorist to operate. There are numerous festivals like Italian Days on Commercial Drive or the Folk Music Festival where large crowds gather. Here, it's harder to watch or to listen to suspected terrorists because of our privacy laws. Also, a terrorist attack is just so low on the public's radar, which in itself makes Vancouver increasingly vulnerable. So, Chris, some precautions are being taken at major gathering spots, but there are so many other locations. And as we learned from Manchester, there are some 3,000 individuals on the radar for anti-terrorism police. So tracking them 24-7 is next to impossible. Chris? All right, Ted Chernecki with a good dose of reality. Another manifestation of hate raising concerns in Metro Vancouver. A resident found a neo-Nazi flyer in his mailbox. Our Paul Johnson is tracking the story. And Paul, it was found in East Vancouver. And this isn't the first time they've appeared on the Lower Mainland. No, it's not. You know, Chris, for any Canadians who watched the terrible things that happened in Charlottesville and at least took some solace in the fact that this hasn't been happening in our country, I'm sad to report that neo-Nazis are now spreading their message in East Van. Take a look. Southeast Vancouver's Collingwood neighborhood is one of the most successful multicultural communities anywhere in the continent. In theory, this would be one of the last places neo-Nazis would look for recruits. But so much for theories. Somebody left a flyer uh, in the mailbox. It wasn't um, Canada Post. Terry Kondak says the flyer arrived yesterday in broad daylight. It features a likeness of Adolf Hitler and an advertisement for a documentary film that purports to tell the other side of the story about Nazi Germany. I'm not against freedom of expression or even distributing flyers. My concern is that whoever did the distribution uh, is exploiting the recent situation in Charlottesville in the United States. Charlottesville shocked the world last week with the scope and intensity of the hatred that surfaced there and the violence that it triggered. But while the American South feels a long way from B.C., racist flyers like the ones delivered in Collingwood yesterday have turned up in Richmond, New Westminster, and Abbotsford so far in 2017. The causes were all different, but the theme of racial intolerance all the same. MTS Popat tracks hate groups in B.C. There are a variety of white supremacist groups organizing in Metro Vancouver, and it's surprising that we're seeing this in East Vancouver, where a lot of large uh, number of immigrant communities live. So I, I don't know what they're trying to achieve. 
Well, Condax isn't rattled by an idiotic concept like a film about Hitler's supposed good side. He is creeped out by the fact that it actually inspired someone to come by his house. Why did somebody go to the trouble of printing up a flyer and distributing it? That's what's unnerving. We obviously aren't going to show any um, parts of this movie that was advertised here, but I took a look at it online, and Chris, this is a six-DVD box set. It's actually staggering to think that somebody would spend the time and the money to try to rewrite history like this. Chris? So true. All right, thanks very much, Paul. Paul Johnson in East Vancouver. Now, a warning from Vancouver police tonight about a man on a bicycle groping women, and they need help identifying him. VPD say there were three separate incidents last Friday along different parts of the seawall, and one woman was knocked to the ground during one of the assaults. A fourth woman was sexually assaulted near Cornwall and Cyprus last Sunday. The man's described as being in his 20s to early 30s, five feet nine inches tall with a slim slim build. He had darker skin with a black hair, with black hair and a short buzz cut, and he was riding a dark colored bicycle. The women all range in age from their late 20s to late 30s and were all walking on or near the seawall during the time. Investigators believe that the suspect is the same in each case. Investigators strongly believe that there is at least one other woman who was groped and has yet to come forward. A lot of residents in the Lower Mainland have spotted smoke rising from a farm in Richmond. These shots from Global One show the fire burning in what's believed to be a blueberry field on Blundell and Six Road near the Mylora Golf Course. It's not known what sparked the flames. Fire crews are on scene and they are working to put it out. We'll bring you any updates as we get them. A violent collision at 16th in Granville early this morning injured a number of people. It was very loud. I've actually never seen anything like that. Three young men were taken to hospital, a fourth also injured, but thankfully none of the injuries are life-threatening. Police are investigating, but a witness says the silver car sped through a red light. This burgundy car was coming around the bend here and uh, ran into him when he was going to the red light and full-on impact, pushed the silver car right across the street, and that's how the cab here got involved because the cab was turning left. And in that taxi, two Air Canada pilots on their way to YVR. They were okay, but the delay pushed back the flight by eight hours, affecting hundreds of passengers. Speed also believed to be a factor in a fatal single vehicle crash near the Pitt River Bridge. The accident closed the Lougheed Highway for several hours overnight. RCMP say a car was westbound near the bridge when it hit a barrier in the median took out a traffic pole and rolled several times before coming to its stop or coming to a stop on its roof. Well, he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's been exactly four years to the day that Robert Patterson was struck and killed in a hit and run on the Surrey Strip. Today, the man accused, 35-year-old Christopher Griffith, was sentenced. Jeff Hastings explains what that sentence means and how the victim's family hopes he'll be remembered. The Wally lot where Robert Patterson was hit and killed hasn't changed much in four years. I saw a truck come through two residential yards to hit my husband from behind and drag him under the truck, roll him backwards, somersaulting five times, and spit him out onto the pavement on the other side of the curb and take off. 
Lucinda doesn't have a picture of Robert. The last time she saw him, she wasn't allowed to join him in the ambulance. She could only listen. Honey bunny, are you coming? And I said, they're bringing me in a car. I'll be there as fast as I can. I have to give a statement. Four years to the day that Robert died, the man driving the truck, 35-year-old Christopher Griffith, received four and a half years imprisonment for criminal negligence causing death and failing to remain at the scene of an accident. A hit and run following an altercation with several people. In a moment of what he felt to be an imminent peril, uh, took his actions and tried to swerve to avoid this group of people coming at him. And unfortunately, Mr. Patterson was struck as a result of that. Griffith was also handed an 11 and a half year driving prohibition for a record behind the wheel that the justice called atrocious. He has two convictions related to drinking and driving, eight other prohibitions or suspensions, 13 other offenses that the judge didn't get into except to say that three of them were for driving without due care and attention. He was also suspended the night that he hit Mr. Patterson. Many on the Surrey Strip remember that night with anger as much as they fondly remember Robert. Justice Jim Williams concluded the court session by telling Griffith he needs to change. Lucinda wasn't there, but she agrees. So to Christopher Griffith, I say, please change your life for the better, because that will make me very happy. Jeff Hastings, Global News. Gordon Wilson, B.C.'s former LNG advocate, is now seeking $5 million in a defamation lawsuit. Wilson, who was dismissed earlier this month by the new NDP government, is suing the province, the premier, and the jobs minister for defamation. According to court documents filed today, Wilson alleges statements made about his work as LNG advocate, quote, seriously injured his reputation. A heartbreaking theft now in Vancouver as a father was saying goodbye to his dying daughter at Canuck Place Children's Hospice. Outside nearby, thieves were breaking into his truck. And while it was ransacked for anything of value... A number of the items he took were priceless only to the family. Jennifer Palma has their plea tonight. We will let it happen. We will let the big idea. Six-year-old Kira Short was a happily lively little girl, beloved by her family. But in 2015, she was diagnosed with a tumor in her neck. The cancer was aggressive and treatment unsuccessful. And weeks turned to three days. Yeah. It turned into three days. Kira declined so fast, so suddenly. Like, I'm still trying to wrap my head around what has happened. I feel like we are in shock right now. You know, we thought we had more time. And this is every parent's worst nightmare. Kira died Tuesday with her parents by her side at Canuck Place Children's Hospice. When it was time for her family to leave, they were shocked to see their Jeep Grand Cherokee had been broken into. Like, it was surreal what had just happened. I just looked and... and I don't know. I, I opened the door and I'm like, something's not right here. The thief or thieves took several items, including $80 in loose change and a boat motor. But what's heart-wrenching are the mementos. Two stones reading blessings and miracle were taken. Keepsakes sure got when Kira was at BC Children's Hospital. Also stolen, pictures like these ones. I had her artwork that she had drawn at her last... <sighs> Her last blood work at Children's Hospital that I hadn't taken out of the car yet. You know, her last picture that she drew at the hospital, that was meaningful <clears throat> to us. And for somebody to take that, like, like take my... the boat motor, take the battery. But why would you take these mementos? I don't understand it. That's just, to me, cruel. The family is asking for the keepsakes to be returned, no questions asked, to the hospice. A public candlelight vigil is being planned. 
as well as a ride to honor Kira's short life. Jennifer Palma, Global News. And if you'd like more information about how to take part in the ride or how to support the family, you can find all that information on our website, globalnews.ca slash bc. Good Samaritans step in to help save a hot dog. The animal was left to bake in a hot car parked in the Squamish Gondola parking lot. A number of people spotted it, but the owners weren't too happy with what happened next. And you might be surprised where the dog is now. That story in just over a minute. A Vancouver Island caregiver caught on camera what she did when she didn't think anyone was watching. Later on the news hour. And a mother and son finally reunited in Canada after a terrifying journey as refugees. The heartwarming story is coming up a little later. Now, the message obviously is not getting through to some pet owners with yet another dog found alone in a hot vehicle, this time in Squamish. As Kristen Robinson reports, the dog was left alone at the base of the Sea to Sky gondola for more than two hours. And where the pet is now will surprise you. Thanks for taking care of it, Jenna. In the August heat, a tow truck driver works quickly. Inside this Honda Fit, a small diaper-clad dog sweating it out on the floor. The animal first spotted at 1.30 Wednesday afternoon by a visitor in the Sea to Sky gondola parking lot. An hour later, staff called 911 when the dog was in obvious distress. When the dog was finally freed just before 3.30, witnesses say the temperature inside was 40 degrees. And that diaper suggests she was left alone in the heat for more than two hours. There was thought put into the length of time the dog was going to spend in the car. And I find that a bit upsetting. That's totally sickening. It's beyond words, really, just on, on how careless that their owners are. The dog seized by Squamish animal control officers. In my 20 years of policing, I've never um, had a dog that was in a diaper at the time. I think it's disturbing uh, because, you know, we, we'd hope that responsible dog owners wouldn't leave their, their pets in unattended vehicles. The dog's owners could be slapped with a $300 fine under Section 39 of the Squamish Animal Control Bylaw, failing to provide proper ventilation. These people planned on being out of that vehicle for a long period of time. I'm not sure if the diaper was because the animal was, let's say, incontinent normally, or if they said, hey, we're going to be going on a hike for a few hours, and the dog, let's make sure it doesn't pee in the car. That, to me, is ridiculous. The SPCA could recommend charges, but history shows they would only be approved if a dog dies or is seriously hurt. So the diaper-wearing dog returned to its owners. We are satisfied that the dog would be taken care of and that the RCMP were following up. See to Sky reminding everyone the gondola down is dog-friendly if you hike up with your pet. Kristen Robinson, Global News. Heat and wind are going to be a concern, especially going into the weekend. And with so many fires burning in the province, meteorologist Christy Gordon joins us now with the details of that special weather statement. Christy. That's right, Chris. So a cold front will slice through the province tomorrow. And the concern, strong gusty winds up to 60 kilometers an hour, especially tomorrow afternoon. Now, these are not sustained winds, but they still could fuel the fire significantly. And in addition, there's a risk of thunderstorms, a very dangerous combination right now. When I come back, Chris, there's also a chance of rain. I'll show you which areas. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Christy. Curing the urge to splurge. You sitting in front of a desktop, you're thinking more analytically. The best way to shop 
if you want to avoid impulse buying. And a bear cools off in a koi pond. Why its good behavior is keeping it out of trouble. Do you find it hard to resist the urge to splurge online? The solution could be as simple as putting down your mobile device and opting for a desktop instead. As John Waugh reports, new research from UBC Okanagan shows that shoppers tend to spend more when the purchase is in the palm of their hand. Anywhere, anytime. All it takes is a self-indulgent swipe, a convenient click to check out that hard-earned paycheck while online shopping. I didn't know I wanted that, and then you end up buying more than you originally planned. They have the suggestions, and you see it, and you're like, oh, that's a pretty good idea. But a new study out of UBC Okanagan has found a desktop might help you avoid buying things you don't really need, while a tablet can trick you into getting that luxury item. When we think about our interaction with the touchscreen, it's very playful and you can use your fingers to explore whichever way you like. Now, according to the study, you pretty much have a split personality when it comes to online shopping, depending on what device you use. For example, if you're shopping on a laptop, you tend to buy more practical things like bread. But when you're using technology with a touchscreen, your taps and swipes tend to go towards more hedonic purchases like massages. When you're sitting in front of a desktop, you're thinking more analytically and rationally, and you will ask yourself, what is the specific function of this product? We decided to put this to the test, diving into the psyches of people who do their shopping online. When you're on your desktop or your laptop, you kind of have to like pull it out and then... Uh, it takes a bit more time. With the iPad, it's so quick to just swipe through and keep looking, and you look at a lot more. While the information can be used to curb your spending habits, you can bet that businesses have also made the connection. You know, we've seen the bigger chains anyway, as far back as maybe three, four years ago, start to use the term uh, mobile first. So if you're trying to save, best put the smartphone and tablet away, or fall victim to the touchscreen temptation. John Hua, Global News. A backyard koi pond proved to be the perfect place for a relaxing summer dip for a bear. A woman in Billings, Montana, caught the bear splashing around in her fish pond yesterday. Oddly, it was more interested in nibbling on the plants. It ignored the koi. He also helped himself to some apples from a nearby tree. Now, this bear has been reported to animal control before, but they don't plan to act on it unless it becomes aggressive, which so far it hasn't done. Suspicions confirmed with a well-placed security camera. Making me absolutely sick to my stomach. What her father's caregiver was doing that now has her facing charges. And why an Australian senator who wore a burqa to parliament and the angry backlash. I demand our leaders, we must invest in books instead of bullets. Books, not bullets will pave the path towards peace and prosperity. Malala Yousafzai is Oxford-bound, the 20-year-old Nobel Peace Prize winner, tweeting her acceptance to the prestigious university, where she'll study philosophy, politics, and economics. Five years ago, Malala was shot by a Taliban gunman for speaking out about the right to education. She is now one of the world's leading voices for the cause. An Australian senator inciting an angry backlash today after she donned a burqa in Parliament. Pauline Hanson, leader of the anti-immigration One Nation Minor Party, 
sat silently for several minutes before rising and removing the garment to address the chamber. Her party is calling for a ban on wearing the religious garments in public, citing national security concerns. Fellow lawmakers condemned Hansen for the stunt. To ridicule that community, to drive it into a corner, to mock its religious garments is an appalling thing to do. And I would ask you to reflect on what you have done. The attorney general says his government has no plans to outlaw the face coverings. A long-awaited emotional reunion between an Iraqi refugee mother and her young son at Winnipeg's airport early this morning. Imad Mishko Tamo was captured three years ago by the Islamic State group. He was freed from Mosul earlier this summer. The 12-year-old and his family are Yazidis, a Kurdish minority group targeted by the insurgents. Imad's mother, who's living in Manitoba with four of her other children, did not know her son was alive until a relative recognized his photo on social media after his rescue. But there's a thousand other kids like me that are still held captive. So I want to share my story so that someone can help those others that are still held captive and are still in danger. Imad's father and brother are still unaccounted for. The young boy is recovering from gunshot wounds and will be monitored by doctors as he settles into his new home. A woman so concerned her elderly father was being ripped off, she set up security cameras to see if she could catch whoever is responsible. And while she didn't exactly solve the theft, the cameras did record her dad's caregiver doing something that she now could be facing charges for. Nitu Garcha explains what the woman found. She has no business being in that door. A care aide hired to take care of a Nanaimo senior is also using the opportunity to take his money. Those allegations from the 93-year-old and his daughter. I have lost sleep. I have been throwing up. There has been distress that's caused is unbelievable. Douglas Fairbanks is meticulous with his money. This is the money I count every day. I know how much money's in my wallet every morning. They say in three separate cases, cash had disappeared from Fairbanks' wallet. 570 bucks since May 10th. They say it was the same nurse at their home each of those three days. Suspecting it wasn't just a coincidence, they set up surveillance cameras in the home. None of the footage caught her stealing, but they allege this July 16th visit could lead to charges. She uh, came in unlawfully. She was working that day, but she was not scheduled to be in this home. Other surveillance video shows the nurse rummaging through a bedroom. You have no protection. I mean, I'm sitting in the chair. And I can't see what's behind me. Fairbanks is a vet. His care is paid for by Veterans Affairs Canada, and the staff are Island Health employees. In an email statement, the authority said an internal investigation is underway, adding, we are very aware of this individual's concerns, and we take them extremely seriously. We have been and continue to be in communication with this family. RCMP also not saying much. We have received an allegation of theft. It's being investigated. And because it's an active investigation, we can't make any comment concerning any details of that investigation. Ty, who's also a residential care aide, says she just wants to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. You have to know that they're safe. You have to know they're safe. You have to know that their belongings are safe. Nitu Garcha, Global News, Nanaimo.
In health news, a major breakthrough in treating deadly peanut allergies. Researchers hoping this discovery could eventually lead to a cure. A group of Australian children with peanut allergies was given a daily probiotic along with small doses of a peanut protein over an 18-month period. At the end, 80% of the children were able to tolerate peanuts without an adverse reaction. They tested the group four years later and found 70% could still have the peanuts with no problem. Researchers say it's the first time a treatment has shown long-term effectiveness, and they hope to confirm these results with a much wider study. An artifact from World War II reunited with a B.C. vet who thought he'd never see it again. So we didn't have any money in our pockets. I gave her what I had. The story behind his army bracelet and why he gave it away all those years ago, only to have it return later on the news hour. And the ceremonial first pitch that went way off target. A ceremonial first pitch. <laughs> A ceremonial first pitch goes awry. What happened that had everyone grimacing after the <laughs> forecast? And I will try to hold it together. Until then, here is Christy. Thanks so much, Chris. No, no trouble. Uh, interested to see that. Okay, so it was a beautiful afternoon, although it was quite cool again this morning with some cloud cover. We'll see a little bit of that again tomorrow. We've got a big change occurring across the province because a cold front is set to push in, and that does mean some showers for the south coast. I'll show you when in a second. But there it is there hitting the north coast right now. So the most significant rainfall really will be across the north and central coast, spreading into the northern parts of the province. It's these areas where we want the rain. Now, the cold front is going to swing across the region overnight and through the morning hours tomorrow. So I've stopped it tomorrow morning. We will see windy conditions. We talked about that earlier with gusts up to 60 kilometers an hour. So not sustained winds, but gusty winds. And then we will also see a few scattered showers. Along with this, embedded in it, we'll see a risk of thunderstorms. The problem with these thunderstorms, if they come near to an area where we have the fires, these thunderstorms could see gusts up to 80 kilometers an hour. And of course, we're talking about lightning strikes as well. So the potential of more um, fires burning. Now, this cold front extends right down into the south coast. So tomorrow, we expect more cloud cover than what we've been used to in the last little while with not much of a break in the afternoon. And by the morning hours on Saturday or late Friday, there's a slight chance of a shower across our region. And for those of you in the interior, you will see the uh, cold front swing out later tomorrow, but the winds will continue right into your Saturday. So the bulk of the rainfall across the north coast, but areas from Prince George down through Quesnel, including Williams Lake, a chance of showers for you tomorrow with a risk of thunderstorms. So that extends into Kamloops and into the Columbia area as well. Anywhere further south, no chance of a shower, but we will see gusty conditions. Now, this is bad news for the fires, but good news because we'll see a lot of that smoke clear out tomorrow and into our Saturday as well. South coast expected to be mainly cloudy, a slight chance of a shower, especially later tomorrow into our Saturday morning. But by Saturday afternoon, we'll be right back into sunshine and clear skies. And that continues into our Sunday and Eclipse Monday looking pretty good for viewing. Uh, Kathleen Haddon celebrating 100 years today. Congratulations. And our weather window actually back when we had a fair amount of uh, smoke across the south coast. This one from Nanaimo. Wayne sent us that one. A great shot of the sun. That is an amazing picture. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thank you, Wayne, for sending that in. There is no crying in baseball. We know that. But there's definitely some wincing. 
A Boston-area photographer got nailed below the belt during the ceremonial first pitch at last night's Red Sox game. The man at the mound is a cancer survivor who's thrown out the first pitch several times at Fenway, but he admits this one was just a bit outside. As soon as it left my hand, I knew it wasn't going to go close to the plate. Just once I saw it hit him, I just turned around and put my hands over my mouth like it's just, <laughs> I couldn't believe it hit him there. I don't place it. This is the photographer's view a moment before impact. Predicting the hit would go viral, he got ahead of the story quickly, tweeting out, You're welcome, world. The two men later shook hands. No harm, no foul, as they would say in baseball. Well, the PNE officially opens this Saturday, and this year's fair is celebrating our country's 150th birthday with an iconic team of performers. Yes, the RCMP musical ride is back, and Linda Aylesworth has a behind-the-scenes look at how they're carrying on this proud tradition. Hey, Gracie. After over 40 hours in a trailer driving from Whitehorse to the PE in Vancouver, it's good to be back on solid ground. There you go. Hold on. Almost done. Gracie is one of 36 RCMP musical ride horses touring the country in celebration of Canada's 150th anniversary. Traveling with her, Constable Melissa Trezchak. We spent eight hours a day, Monday to Friday, together, so I'm responsible for all of her care, her grooming, her feeding. And then the riding. Hard to believe that prior to joining the musical ride, Melissa had no experience with horses. 80% of the riders don't. Hey, Willie, how are you? You having a nap? Constable Rusty Olson had only slightly more experience when he decided to take on the challenge. It's one of those accomplishments in your life. I, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, truly a mounted police officer being able to ride. There's a legacy behind that. I, you know, I feel that's important and it is something special. The tradition goes back to the late 1800s. By 1967, then RCMP officer Dwight Ross signed on. It was Canada's centennial, so it was a, a great opportunity to uh, uh, travel around the country. Fifty years later, I look back on it and I think, wow, that was, that was incredible. We perform in large cities and small, small communities, and um, <laughs> just to say... Patrick Eakin's experience with the musical ride goes back over 30 years. Every day is a gift, uh, you know, going out and performing in front of the public. The musical ride is, uh, really has a, an ability to reach out to Canadians from all walks of life. Until August 30th, they will ride in several B.C. communities, starting tomorrow at Swangard Stadium to celebrate Burnaby's 125th anniversary. Then it's off to Alberta. The iconic image of a, a Mountie on a horse uh, has stood the test of time, and uh, it's really an honor to uh, be part of this musical ride. And Aylesworth, Global News. Well done. Lots of training. Mm. I being a kid, seeing it the first time was very, very, very I did impressive. Too. I think I saw it many, yeah, 40 some years, years ago, ago, back yeah. when Elvis was alive yet. <laughs> That's right. That was way back. Uh, Barry's here for Squire talking sports. Mm-hmm. It's Little League uh, World Series time, mm-hmm. and uh, the White Rock All Stars showed some pop in their opener, the Little League World Series. It's a grand slam. It was a record-setting performance, and we'll have all the highlights. And a BC World War II veteran reunited with a sentimental item he had to leave behind more than 70 years ago. Well, the young boys playing baseball at the Little League World Series, some of them aren't 
aren't so little. No, no, they, 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 the kids eat and drink a lot of, uh, of, of that hormone milk, I think. These <laughs> oh, days. yeah. Makes them, makes them big. That's, that's my theory. All right, thanks, Chris. Yeah, it's the uh, time of year when kids get the Major League treatment. The Little League World Series got underway today in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And representing Canada, as is often the case, is a team from B.C., the White Rock All-Stars. They cruised through the Canadian Championship last week in Medicine Hat, and today they started against the European champs from Italy. And there's Canada's mascot, a panda. Didn't realize that was the Canadian mascot. Hit it here, says the fan in left. All right, Chase Marshall following instructions. In the first, he crushed one, and then in the third with the bases loaded, hit a towering grand slam to left. That'll get a big cheer from the parents and families uh, along for the trip. 10-1 White Rock, and how cool is this? His sister, uh, Lexi, got both home run balls as souvenirs. Pretty cool. Chase wasn't done yet. Comes on to pitch, bottom of the third. Strikes out a pair of batters to end the inning. He's six foot tall, 13 years old, imposing figure. His mom was a great softball player for Canada, played at the 96 Olympics. Matteo Manzi also knocks in a run for the Canadian champs, 12 to 1. And then Marshall ends it with this strikeout. A great start, 12 to the final, the biggest blowout win for a Canadian team ever at this tournament. They'll meet Venezuela on Sunday. That'll be a much tougher test. All right, saw the little leaguers, now the major leaguers. Jays and Rays from Toronto, Josh Donaldson on a tear at the plate. Solo homer in the first, one nothing. In the fifth, Donaldson goes deep again. He and Chase Marshall both hit two home runs today. His, on TV, his 20th, ninth in the month of August, 3-1 Jays. Justin Smoke crushes his team-leading 34th. Jays win 5-3. They're just three out of the wild card after the year they've had, but they have to jump over six teams. Still 41 to go. They got a chance. Canada had high hopes for another podium finish at the Women's Rugby World Cup in Ireland. Canada won silver back in 2014. But in order to get to the semifinals today, they needed to beat powerful New Zealand, something they had never done before. Now would be a good time. Canada 0-13 all-time versus the Black Ferns, as they're called, and uh, unfortunately there wasn't much doubt it would go to 0-14, and early on the New Zealanders showed their class. Salika Winiata will take it home for the try, that made it 5 to nothing. still in the first half, on the attack again, Stacey Waka drives in for the try, it was 29-0 New Zealand at the half. Now 36-0, and here's Canada's one shining moment. It is terrific team rugby. Four perfect passes and racing in for the try. J.C. Grusnick, Canada's only try of the match, but they just ran into a juggernaut. New Zealand rolls 47-5. Canada can do no better than fifth. Well, one of the most difficult decisions for any pro athlete is to know when is the right time to retire. For North Vancouver tennis player Philip Bester, doing it this week at home was the perfect time. Philip Bester spent hundreds of hours as a kid hitting on the practice courts at Hollyburn Country Club in West Vancouver, dreaming of the day he would be a pro tennis player. So it's only fitting this is the site of his final tournament, 10 years after turning pro in 2007. Guy and Gino Byrne, members of, at Hollyburn, they opened the doors for me when I was just seven years old for uh, my father and I to use the facilities and um, to come at six in the morning and, and then come back after school at, you know, two o'clock and train again till six and then use the gym. 
Bester had high hopes that he would be able to make a viable living on the ATP Tour, but it didn't work out that way. His career high ranking was 225 a couple of years ago. He made the odd appearance at the Canadian Open and some major tournaments, but mostly slugged it out on the challenger circuit, where just making expenses is the biggest challenge. I wouldn't change anything because I've learned so many things from these experiences, um, how I've dealt with them, how I've um, overcome them, and um, it's really set me up for um, the rest of my life in, in who I am and, and the, the type of character that it's built. At 28, he felt it was time to get a more normal life, so he'll stay in tennis and coach. But there's no bitterness, mostly fond memories of how his parents did everything possible to make sure their son could chase a dream. My mom has made incredible sacrifices as a mom, letting me go at such an early age uh, to Florida and not having me around, uh, which I can't, I can only imagine how tough that was for her. It all started with my dad and I. Um, the, the amount of time, effort, hours, um, all the times that my dad went to war for me in many different instances when I was younger, um, I owe him um, such a big thank you for everything that he's done. Uh, I am also where I am today because of how my parents have raised, have raised me. And he just unfortunately lost his doubles match quarterfinals just a few moments ago. So officially mm-hmm. retired now, but we wish him the best. Great pro, mm-hmm. obviously. Yeah. yeah. Great career as a coach ahead. Thanks mm-hmm. very much, Barry. Here's Andrew now with a preview of Global News at 11. Yeah. All right, we have some developments in that terrorist attack. Spanish police have shot and killed four terrorism suspects, and another suspect has been injured and arrested just south of Barcelona in Cambrils. There are reports those suspects may have had explosive belts. Meantime, six bystanders and one police officer have been injured during that takedown. We will have more details when you join us later tonight. And as we heard, former LNG advocate Gordon Wilson is suing the premier for $5 million. We'll hear from Wilson lawyer tonight at 11. Chris. All right. Thanks very much, Ann. Look forward to that. And when we come back across the decades and across continents, love finds a way. Next. Well, it's a story that stretched across two continents and seven decades involving an Okanagan World War II veteran and the efforts of an American family to reunite him with a sentimental item he parted ways with more than 70 years ago. Shelby Tom has the story. And now my Chuck is forced to fly, and we never even said goodbye. 97-year-old Charles Bernhardt reads from a love letter he received 73 years ago during a whirlwind romance while deployed overseas during the Second World War. It was penned by Daphne, a woman he met in London in 1944, and along with the love letter, she also gave him a bracelet that she made herself, engraved with his name and regimental number from when he served in the Canadian Army. While camping out in the Netherlands, a country occupied by Nazi Germany at the time, Bernhard traded this bracelet for some food. We didn't have any money in our pockets. I gave her what I had. (laughs) The bracelet exchanged for some eggs from the farm of Bernadina Smith. Now, seven decades later, Bernhard received this letter. I opened it and I read this story, how I had... Would be while we were in Holland. The letter from the Smith family, her son in Albany, Oregon, had been trying to track him down to return the bracelet. You know, she always wondered what happened to the the brave Canadian soldier that had that. And uh, when they immigrated here in 1948, she probably had one 
small suitcase with her, and that was one thing she brought with her. It was that important. The Smiths now want to make a trip to Summerland to return the sentimental item in person. Bernhardt with a special message in Dutch for Smith's efforts. Thank you all, my mijn vrouw. Thank you very much, my nice grandmother.